Hi everyone. As we near towards the end of the year, I wanted to let you know that registrations are still open for the January intake of my 12-week transformation program. Stepping out from behind the smile is an immersive container that guides you through my holistic transformation model, helping you to step off the hamster wheel and start living a life you love. Whether you're looking to address your relationship with food, alcohol, money, or relationships, this program is designed to give you the tools to create a meaningful life on purpose. If you'd like to know more, you can reach out through my website, ashbutters.com, or DM me the word smile on Instagram. Let this be your sign to say yes to the life you deserve and start 2024 the way you want to live it. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Isabella Ferguson. Bella is a registered counsellor, alcohol master coach, and the host of not one, but two podcasts, which we'll talk more about later. Bella identifies as having been a grey area drinker throughout her 20-year drinking career, which came to an abrupt halt in February 2020 after entering a rehab facility. Today, Bella's life couldn't look more different. She's left her former industry of law and is now a corporate wellness speaker, as well as heading up a busy counselling practice, focusing on helping people address their relationship with alcohol and regain balance in their lives. I had the pleasure of joining Bella and her co-host Meg on their podcast, Not Drinking Today, and now it's my turn to ask Bella the questions. So with that, I'd love to welcome Bella onto the show. Bella, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you this morning? I'm really good. And look, thank you, Ash, for such a lovely introduction. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Me too. As I mentioned, we had a little bit of a brief uh, conversation when I joined you on your podcast and we had so much fun then. And I'm really looking forward to getting straight into it again today. So thank you for joining me here. Now, you mentioned that you're busy packing up your house at the moment because you're moving to Adelaide for a short stint. Yes, moving to Adelaide just for nine months. But it's just the right time for change and mm. um, I suddenly now I'm really looking forward to it. If someone said that we weren't going to Adelaide and I was staying, I think I'd get a little bit panicky. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking. And the slowness of pace that Adelaide yeah. hopefully will bring, I'm really looking because forward to Because you currently live in Sydney, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. And oh, I keep a pretty good balanced lifestyle, but there's a lot. There's a lot going on, so... Yeah. Sydney's a busy place, isn't it? I was there for eight years and yeah, it's it's an expensive city. There's a lot going on, not a lot of downtime. Of course, you can carve out time for yourself yeah. and I've, I've yeah. learned to do that now. But yeah, it is a, definitely a busier pace than Adelaide and I just love how much you're embracing the change. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a novelty as well. i kind of mm. been in the same routine for quite a period now and mm. 
I just think I could do with a bit of a shake up, you know. Yeah, I could and really you, do with you, a bit of a thing, a change. And you're a mum, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, what uh, are the kitties thinking? They're pretty good. They're pretty good. Yeah. So I've got two uh, stepdaughters who are now, gosh, they're. 23 26 they're going to stay in Sydney so that's going to be really sad that we'll be separated but they're going to come and visit and the boys who are 14 and 15 are excited because they're going from an all-boys school to an all to co-ed hey, hey. So they're, they're like <laughs> they're worried about their hair now and their skin and uh look I don't think they really know what it's going to be like to be new kids at a school but um, yes yeah, they're, they're embracing it Fabulous, fabulous. Bella, if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions just so our audience can get to know a little bit about you before we dive into the interview today. So we've ascertained that you live in Sydney and are taking a trip down to Adelaide for the next nine months, but I'd love to know what does an average day look like for you and what do you do for fun? Ah, gosh, an average day is... It depends if I'm in a good routine. So my ideal day is to wake up, uh, not look at my phone and go for a little run with my beagle Daphne just down the point <laughs> back, only three Ks, but we're out, we're near the water. Uh, and then it's pretty much come back, get the kids ready for school. Uh, I work for a youth mentoring organisation twice a week. So I'm out there at a couple of schools and then I'm back and I've got counselling sessions. Uh, I only work 10 to 12 individual clients a week or any at any one time. So I've either got sessions or I've got uh, podcast guests. Mm. I think that's a pretty good average day. I'm normally down tools by uh, 4.35 and then I'm in that cooking routine and by... Oh, 7.30, I'm on the couch with a hot chocolate. Um, mm, beautiful. And our family are pretty daggy. We come around, we, we all gather in the evening and we watch a TV show. It's normally SNL or comedy and then it's bed. I'm in bed by nine. Yes, <laughs> that sounds like heaven. Yeah, that's the day. Look, if, if, I'm, if I'm even better, I am doing a Peloton for 30 minutes or I'm at the gym once in the day. Uh, I might be doing a yoga nidra meditation, which I mm. have only started in the last two weeks. So I'm trying to do that. If it's the perfect day, I've gotten up at five o'clock in the morning and I've gone to uh, Balmoral Beach with two mates. And we've jumped in the water before the sun rises and we've come oh, back. Oh, wow. So look, <laughs> it depends. Sounds great. It <laughs> sounds like I love the idea that you have the intention to not look at your phone first thing in the oh. morning because I have to be honest, I'm such a shocker with that. I wake up, hit my alarm, and then it's like bang straight into all of the whatever's showing up on my phone that day. It's such an assault on the system first thing in the morning, but I seem to keep doing it to myself. Yeah, it's hard not to. <laughs> I know. It's I guess it's that whole addiction thing. We're addicted to our phones Yeah. anything else. Tell me. What inspired you to start a second podcast? And I'd love for you to talk about that a little yeah. bit because I know that you've got Not Drinking Today, which first yeah. started as Sober in Sydney or something exactly along right. those lines. Yeah, she's yeah. Sober Sydney. Um, mm. I, I started um, De-Stress for Success because I really wanted to focus on things other than just alcohol. Mm. I love the alcohol-related stories and all the rest of it, but my uh, counselling practice is a bit more than that. It, it's really 
talking about stress and burnout and helping people with stress and burnout. So most people come to me for alcohol, but then it moves into, you know, how to de-stress, how to calm the nervous system and all of those topics. And I think stress is the root cause of so many things in our lives. There's just endless possibilities of topics and episodes mm. uh, around it. And I love the platform of podcasting because you can mm. re- you can talk about so much. You get to know people. You can find a guest that you've always wanted to meet, ask them on, and you've then, you know, you've delved into these wonderful conversations. So mm. uh, I just wanted to see where it went perhaps in a bit of a different direction than just purely alcohol conversations. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? For so many of us, we get sober and then, God willing, we we get a handle on that. And then we start to look at life and go, well, what else is there? And what are the other things that are perhaps roadblocks or challenges? And how do I face life on a day-to-day basis without using a substance to numb the edges? Uh, So to having those tools to be able to de-stress, to self-regulate is so, so important. I know I talk with my clients a lot about that as well and just being able to come back to self, sit in the uncomfortability, do life on life's terms. So it's beautiful. Thank you so much for bringing that to the world. And and I'll just really quickly add is that I think um, for me, my podcasting that I've done also with um, the, the first podcast, Not Drinking Today, is I kind of delve into topics that I need to know and learn myself. Mm. Uh, and I think there's, you know, lots for me to learn that I need to start absorbing into my own life. And I think that's where I'm going with it. You know, for the sake of science, I might have to do an ice bath or two or learn a <laughs> yes. bit more about meditation that I know you know, but yeah. I'm not all over. So I think it's that that kind of uh, I love that. I love me. that you're coming at it rather than as as the expert, you're coming from a place of wanting to learn and grow, which I think will be so beneficial to your audience and your listeners. How cool. I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> All right, let's let's take it back. I would love to talk about your photo. So Bella, I've asked you to bring in a photo oh. today <laughs> from a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile. So you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was internally you were struggling. Mm. Could you please describe for our listeners who can't see the photo right now, but you can check it out on the website ashbutters.com, what are we looking at here? Could you describe the photo, but then also talk about what was going on for you in your life at that time? Oh, thank you, Ash Butters. That was a hard exercise. You know, it was really hard to look at photos pre-February 2020. I hadn't I hadn't done it before. Wow. So going onto my phone last night to do this was really hard because um, for everybody that was pre-rehab. Mm. So I hadn't realised I had really delineated quite a mental break before rehab, after rehab. But um, so this photo is 2014, uh, so quite some time beforehand, but it's in Hawaii. I So 2014, I'd already had my boys uh, who were born 2008-2009 and uh, my stepdaughters were already in my life. So they were, um, gosh, they're moving on to 10 and 12 by that stage. We'd escaped to Hawaii um, as a, one of the first, very first holidays that we were doing without kids. I had arrived six days earlier 
to chill because my husband was off on a, a bike riding exercise and then he joined me. And in that photo, he had arrived. I had already been there for a bit and I was looking forward to the holiday. But when I look at that photo, I'm just reminded of, gosh, the, all that was yet to come. So all of the, uh, you know, another, gosh, uh, five to seven years of the ramping up of my drinking style that was unknown to me then. And when I had arrived at Hawaii by myself, the very first thing I did was to go down to the um, bar on the beach and order, I think, the first of what must have been, gosh, six Bloody Marys. And then I went up to my room, but I had gone to the shops. I'd got a few bottles of champagne. That was my idea of celebrating was to go up to my room, have some champagne by myself uh, Mm. and then probably watch TV, then go to sleep. I mean, it was just kind of setting the the routine. And then I would get up and I call it aggressively exercise Mm. and, and then do a bit of shopping, then start the cycle again. But when I look at that photo, I am pretty well groomed. I'm exercised. I fake tanned. I am pretty much just trying to live an exhausting, perfect life mm. that I could not consider so different from me today. And I think it was that exhaustive energy that I see myself then that kind of burnt me out. Mm. Um And just to top it off, that night, so my husband was with his best mate. We went out and had the biggest, wildest, craziest night. I woke up, looked at my husband. His glasses were broken. Uh, I think I had been slapped in the face and I thought we'd had this amazingly huge night where I'd stood up to somebody on the dance floor and it just had turned into this wild palaver. Then three years later, my husband's friend had actually filmed it and I looked like such a fool. So I was like thinking I was fly kicking and (laughs) defending myself on the dance floor. I was just, I basically was kicking and punching the air and I fell on my bum and my husband got, you know, his glasses fell off, they got trampled, we woke up and, you know, what a dickhead. Um, (laughs) It was just the culmination of the foolish, self-destructive wildness that can happen in those crazy nights. Yeah. But wow. You've just taken me right back, Bella. I did some serious damage when I was in Hawaii, particularly the last time I was there with my mom and I was just at the height of my addiction. It would have been mm. 2019. Uh, and I was just drinking to excess. I was disappearing. Like my, we'd get back to the hotel. I'd decide I hadn't had my fill. So then I'd go back out by myself, just finding random bars to drink at. My mum wouldn't know where I was. Like it was just absolute chaos. But you know, the funny thing was if you'd looked at my Instagram profile, it was happy snaps by the pool, by the beach, staying active, being in the sun. Like there was no photos of me wasted, falling over, you know, just, yeah, 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 like the, what we do to keep up appearances and that delusion and that denial. And I, you know, I don't think we're alone in that. I think, you know, social media these days is all, is a highlight reel, but 
particularly on holidays, you know, you see people's photos having a great time, but you don't see that, you know, the next morning when they're hung over in bed, (laughs) you know, having had an argument with their partner the night before and (laughs) the reality of it all. (laughs) It is so messy off camera. Uh, Yeah. Feeling so exhausted, so awful. Mm, Yeah, no, thank, thank goodness those days are over. Bella, I'd love to take it back now. What do I need to understand about you as a child that will help me frame a picture of the adult that you grew into? God, good question, Ash. Um, I think probably there was always a need to fit in and never really being part of my sort of school group until I had really found my core group in year eight. So when I think back to primary school, we moved uh, back to Canberra in year three. I really only had one friend there and I always felt a little bit excluded. I can remember feeling uncomfortable in my skin and lacking confidence. Uh, And it was the same when I moved to high school um, until I met my core group of friends, which we're still really close today. But I think when I... When I think what alcohol gave me during high school, which is when we all started drinking in Canberra, mm. it was a voice, it was confidence, and it was attention for risk taking. Mm. And I just took it and ran with it from there <laughs> through to Hawaii and beyond. <laughs> but um, look, my I grew up with a really good family, really good mum and dad an awesome sister. So really it was just for me the the lack of confidence that I had and the need to find my tribe and my friends Mm. and Mm. sort of have little echoes of that even still, like really wanting to, you know, make sure all of my friends still really love me. There's a bit of that kind of still now, but I'm a lot more grounded with it. But I think that's what alcohol played for me. Um, ever since mm. that very first drink with my friends and beyond. Mm. Yeah. Do you identify as having a, a, a negative core belief around not being good enough or not being worthy or needing to prove yourself? <sighs> I don't think so. I think um, I'm pretty, I've got a pretty solid sense of self and I always knew that my future was going to be okay. So mm. Thankfully, uh, I always knew that I was going to do well at school and I stayed really focused with my studies and I exercised a lot. I was always staying fit and I think that sort of kept my Mm. mental health up. Uh, Mm. So, no, I've, I've always felt I was good enough. But I've so all, where do I've you never, think, yeah, yeah. The, 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 with the friendships, it's curious yeah. to me. I just never felt like... Oh, that's a really good question. I haven't probably got right down to the core of it. Um, mm. I always just so desperately wanted that group. And I I think because when we we'd lived in Sydney before Canberra that um, I'd always just never found it in primary school. It's mm. I think it's as basic as that. Mm. Um and so when I found it, I held onto it for dear life. And yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's very natural for us as human beings to want to find our tribe. Yeah, 
and to oh, have that connection. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you describe being highly academic, exercising a lot. Now that to me is reminds me of my perfectionism, like needing to succeed, needing to achieve. I, for me it was academics and music mm. rather than so much sport. What was it that was driving you? Was there was that your own inner dialogue? Was that external validation that you were seeking? What was happening there? I think uh, it was a real effort to prove myself, uh, to really pull ourselves, to, to show that I could do something incredible and to do really well. To write, I, I kind of wanted to get myself out of where I was in Canberra and, you know, very, very middle-class family, but I wanted more. And I can really, I can remember somebody saying to me uh, at one point, what do you want to be? And I didn't really know, but law was that kind of thing that you kind of do when you don't know what else it is you want to do. And I said, law, and they just said, look, I don't think, you know, you've got, you've got to be really smart. I don't think you're going to get there. And that was just like a red rag to a bull. And, um, and there I was out the door and, Look, maybe there were echoes of maybe not feeling quite good enough now that you've said that, Ash. This is like a really awesome counselling session um, <laughs> because because I, I don't think I was sort of seen at school and I really wanted to be seen. And then there was this amazing drama teacher, Mr George Hooker, who kind of recognised that in me and he made me drama captain in years, year 12. And then my whole confidence blossomed and opened up and drama became the thing that I loved in year 12. And that actually then helped, helped boost my marks. I don't know if that can still happen in HSC these days, but it was because of that that I got into uni and um, that then helped me sort of then get into law and of course, university drinking culture, which was insane. Yeah. Yeah. So did you go to university straight out from school? Yeah. Yeah. And I was young. I was really young for my year. So I think I graduated when I was 17 and mm. I was straight to the University of New England up in Armadale. Mm. And mm. Uh, I was lived in dorm culture, that rural dorm culture where like O-Week was buckets, garbage uh, bins full of um, vodka and cordials. And, oh, my goodness. And you just got smashed and you pretty much got smashed for, you know, the next three years continuously. It was mm. insane. And, of course, you didn't have to, but, of course, but I if did. you wanted to fit in, yeah, yeah. That, was, yeah, yeah, that was your ticket, right? And I didn't know how to and, it, and I've never really known how to talk to big groups of people uh, straight off the bat. I've never had that natural small talk. I'm very much a one-on-one -on -one deep talker. So mm. I can just remember being there going, ah, and then I was off to the races as soon as the alcohol came out. And yeah, yeah, I get that. It's that social lubricant that when introduced becomes something that we just start to rely on without even being conscious of it. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it, yeah. And that was that drinking culture something that then carried on to, into your corporate life? Did you become a lawyer? Yeah, yeah, it sure did. Um, so straight into the law was, oh, it was actually quite good. I, I went straight into sort of human rights law and then environmental law. 
but with uh, trying to find my my footing in the whole legal world, there was a lot of drinking as well. There was lots of that. That's how you got to know everybody, and I moved from at that point. I had gone back to Canberra to do my um, my legal workshop career, my legal workshop uh, practicing certificate at the ANU, and then straight to Sydney by myself again. And so there's also, you know, that sort of just displacement and isolation and not, I didn't have any friends in Sydney uh, except one or two. So I then threw myself, my whole identity into my world as a lawyer. Mm. And that's probably a bit of a theme too, Ash, to be honest, is a bit of a chameleon style personality. So and that probably is grounded in not really truly knowing who you are. So, mm. always, and I've always been a bit of a seeker. It's always been themes of trying to know who, discover who I am, which is interesting for me, not, not so interesting for everybody else around me. But I, um, you know, at university, I, you know, I was a big hippie, had dreadlocks and um, did wild things. And then I suddenly then became a corporate lawyer and that's mm. who I was. You know, I became very um, disciplined and tailored and very corporate and did that for 20 years. Mm. Yeah, drinking uh, was how you marketed the uh, with your clients. It's how you got clients. It's how you celebrated. And as part of uh, just keeping going, so doing your advices and doing the really long hours, you really had a had a fridge in the workplace that you could just grab a beer or a wine wow. and that you could actually buy, they would deliver in food for you. So you'd get your food, you'd grab a wine and that would keep you going. Mm. Um, and I, I was always the one, well, I was always a, f- a handful, but at the work conferences that would just take that bottomless bar for all that it was worth and mm-hmm. get pretty messy. Look, I don't think I embarrassed myself too much, but I remember waking up a lot just going, oh, God. And then and then it, it then kind of then eated into just being at home. Uh, so when my kids came along, it was a really hard juggle to be both a mum and mm-hmm. keep because by, by that time I was a litigation lawyer. So to divvy up being a mum and then going to work was really, really hard. And mm. I uh, I don't know whether it was just part of the 1990s culture, but I really, and, and it reminds me of that photo that we were just talking about, really pushed myself to, to have it all. There was no um, self-care or downtime beyond extreme exercise. So um, when I had my kids, we, um, I got an au pair. Um, straight and I went back to work when my first child Paddy was six months old Mm. and he was gorgeous and is gorgeous but really difficult separation anxiety so with the litigation and court work at work and then trying to leave him with an au pair and then later on preschool my, I can, I can already feel it now. My nervous system was ramped up to the max. Like it was really hard to handle. And, um, you know, I can, I can remember, uh, 
we I had to leave him. Oh, he was already in kindergarten. So he 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 was having really sep- bad separation anxiety until about year three, and having to pull him off me mm. uh, and leave him with the teachers before I ran off to work and crying in the car. That was kind of like a daily routine with Paddy, and then stressing at work about my kids, and then having to come home. And the way that I knew how to de-stress as soon as I got home was to crack open a bottle of red uh, Mm. that took the edge off, that um, Mm. enabled me to then do the next shift, which was from work to home life and cooking. Mm. And then the next shift, which was to sit down again after they put them to bed to do advice work, then to get up the next morning to do it all again. I thought it was normal. I thought Mm. that was a really ordinary way to live because that's what, you know, that's what we saw, you know, when we watched TV Mm. and that's what my parents did. And it was just like it was on a, it was a a train heading into a, a crash and I can see it now. It was really obvious, but it wasn't so much before. Mm. 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 Yeah. It very much feels like the hamster wheel and I imagine that would have been really hard to challenge in your mind because you'd worked so hard to get to that point, like doing well at school, getting the grades, going to university, then doing your articles. Like it's such a long journey to become a lawyer and and, and this can apply to any modality or frame of line of work that you're going into when you've worked so hard to get there. And then you get there and then all of a sudden you go, oh, this isn't it. You know, I'm not, this hasn't, this hasn't filled the hole in my soul. Like, why do I still feel empty? Spot on. Yeah. And so that's when we do, isn't it? We look to fill it with booze or whatever our poison is just to try and fill the void. Absolutely spot on, Ash. And I, um, I didn't want to fail. For me, it was a, would, would have been a white flag to say, oh, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I I need to cut back my time because it's hard enough to get back into the workplace when you've had some maternity leave off because you're, you know, you, your, ultimate, your only goal, your ultimate goal is to become a partner. And to become mm. a partner, you've got to get, earn your billables and increase your client load. So, you know, you did, I didn't want to become one of those women that couldn't show that they could be a partner. And um, mm. and ultimately I could see why many of them do. It's really hard. There's no real space. Mm. It could be changing, but there wasn't space then to really come back uh, noticeably part-time. You, d- you just don't get ahead. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and look, I, by the time I had left environmental law and human rights law was more uh, doing litigation, it wasn't filling my cup I was that I was one of those lawyers that did stand around with the PAs kind of going oh imagine if you could do something else imagine if Mm. you could paint if you could be a florist how wonderful life could be I was checking out already Mm. but uh, Mm. yeah I I hadn't realized at that point yet that alcohol was becoming a thing like my husband and I were well He's always been a pretty good moderate drinker, but 
I would have my bottle of red, he'd have his bottle of white, and that was our nightly routine. And mm. when we went out in our social circle, that's everyone would just pound it and drink. Mm. It, dinner mm. was to go out to get smashed. Yeah. Uh, that That's how we operated. So, yeah, mm. there were no red flags for me yet. There should have been. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, especially when you surround yourself with people who drink the way you do. You just, yeah. there's, you know, and if you're keeping everything together, family yes. life, work life, you know, there, there are no red flags yet. It's that internal voice that, you know, starts to just whisper away going, I don't oh. want to do this. I'm not feeling great. The guilt, shame, remorse. So let's talk about then if, if that's okay yeah, with you. I'd love yeah. to talk more about what was then the progression and how did it start to play out in your life? I uh, got to the point with work where I felt so negative. I uh, started to feel a bit panicky about going into work when certain clients would call on the phone. I'd start to feel panicky. I dreaded it. The negativity was overwhelming and I started to get really stressed, really anxious and was crying a lot and uh, I was on the cusp of burnout if not there, and I uh, did ultimately make that call to stop the work that I was in. I couldn't stand it, Um, couldn't do another day. So I did go home and look after the kids, and that was what I was telling everybody, that I was looking after the kids, that's that's why I wanted to get home. And um, that was probably 80% of it. The 20% of it was that I just couldn't get, I couldn't do the work anymore. It was just toxic. And uh, then I was suddenly able to mingle with all of these awesome women around me that I had seen had an awesome social networks in my community when I was that mum at the mum gate that couldn't socialise. So I was tapping into all of these these fun, smart, lovely women and we would go out to lunch. We would have really long lunches and every Friday was a long lunch and um, then it was Saturdays and then it was coming home at four o'clock in the morning and Mm. it kind of then took on a whole different stage of life. So when I was, when I was working, I was, I'd say just a functional gray area drinker. And then when I stopped work and had all this time and I really, I, I sort of entered what I would call the flashing red drinking zone and I was having fun until I wasn't I was drinking and partying a lot and loving it and hosting it hosting the parties as well and always being one of the last ones standing at all the gatherings and then it just tipped into really stupid dangerous drinking behavior Mm. um where I was starting to have to drink just to feel normal. I was certainly physically addicted by that stage. So, um, and not really understanding what that meant, but I would wake up and feel so revolting that I would have Mm. a glass of wine by 11 o'clock by myself. Mm. And then I would start researching how to taper off alcohol so that I don't, you know, start to have all the withdrawals. So it wasn't getting anything from it, but Mm. um, I was doing this secret hidden drinking at home by myself. None of my friends knew. 
my husband is pretty clever. So he would start to clock on when he was coming home that I'd probably had a bottle, bottle and half by myself by that, by in the later days. And I was doing all the things like hiding the bottles in the cupboard, wrapping them up, waiting for recycling day to put them in. It was all just taking, it was taking on a whole big life of its own. Really suddenly I was captured by this substance. Um, it was consuming my thoughts, was turning me into a liar to my gorgeous mm. husband. And I, and I think that's an episode I'd love to do one day is just the impacts it has to these people that love you, watching mm. you. Um, and so lots of moments where he'd just be like, babes, what, what's that? What are you doing? You, mm. And I'd be like, yeah, this is weird. It's got to stop. I will. Mm. And then, um, then you'd sort of regain some trust again and then you'd, you'd do it again because mm. you were tired. So at that point I was, it had just overwhelmed and had overtaken me and I, I had no control over it mm. at all. And um, I was regularly up at the bottle shop. I knew, you know, this, the, I knew by my first name, my first name basis. It was so embarrassing. And my, oh God, the ultimate, the ultimate shame story is that, you know, my husband just, he was, he was done with it. He, he was sick of it. And he got, where is it? And I was like, what? Where is the alcohol? And he found about, you know, 35 bottles that I had gathered over the course of, well, months, potentially, mm. <laughs> uh, and hidden on, with the, with the goal that I was going to stash them and hide them and it, would all, it was all going to be okay. Uh, it culminated in one day I drank too much and my husband didn't know what to do. I was really, my blood alcohol level was at, as it turned out, was at 0.4. Oh, wow. So I was nearly probably dead. And um, he took me to the hospital and I had to go through that embarrassing, embarrassing uh, routine of taking up somebody else's bed that needed it and being detoxed. Um, and the lady, this beautiful doctor, had just, just said to me, she said, babes, my brother went through this. Um, you deserve better and you deserve to treat your family better. And she just said, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to discharge you. I'm going to put you on another ward and you're going to make some calls and you're going to get yourself into rehab and sort it out. And mm. just by her absolute self-compassion, she wasn't judging me. She just went, oh, uh, I checked myself in to Byron Bay Treatment Centre and that was just the circuit breaker and mm. you know maybe maybe all of that was imploding my life on purpose to show that I couldn't do it myself mm. something had to give I needed external help and mm. a lot of good came from that a lot of mm. good came from that surrender which should have happened heck of a lot earlier you know mm. yeah wow oh Bella thank you for sharing that oh. that's just like I 
yeah, mm-hmm. my heart, I feel it. And I, and it's oh, when you just described hiding the bottles, I remember Ooh. doing that as well. And oh, that what you spoke about there about how we become liars, Ooh. we become dishonest and it's really not the person. And this is what I say to people who have family members who are mm. struggling is this is not the person, it's the disease talking and the madness of the mind and what starts to happen and that desperation, we're not making conscious decisions and we we aren't the people who we truly were born to be when addiction takes hold. The other thing that you pointed out was how for so long it sounds like your job and your responsibilities had kept your drinking at bay. And so it wasn't ever really you controlling your drinking but the circumstances around you and when they were removed it was like fantastic, now I can start to drink the way I want to drink. And I think this is another really familiar story for people is when the responsibilities, whether it's the job or the children are removed, they grow up, they leave home, all of a sudden you start to drink the way you want to for somebody who has substance abuse issues. Yeah. And very quickly it can start to progress. And then it's almost like it sneaks up on you and you do end up drinking every single day, drinking in the morning, becoming physically dependent. Now that's not everyone's stories. Yeah. Yeah, But it is certainly like something I can relate to. And yeah, thank you for just shining a light on the reality of how quickly it can happen. Yeah. Look, really well said. Ash, and, and I think there was a, there's another element to that too, which is that without that external distraction, without doing something in my life that was outside of my family and my husband, without having external validation of feeling like I was had something a greater meaning outside of just my little pod, I had taken away actually a, a great sense of fulfilment and purpose. So I was a little bit a little bit untethered, which I loved because I was so stressed and it was mm. lovely for a change. But I am a person that needs to keep busy. I need to have other things to do and really love and get into. Mm. Without it, I became um, a little bit lost and I didn't mm. know what it is I wanted to do. So mm. there, there was that mm. element as well. And a lot of people... A lot of women actually that I now work with that do similar behaviours, you know, that day drinking alone, that hidden day drinking, a lot of Mm. women do it and there's so many reasons for it that, um, yeah, as basic as, yeah, you're addicted and you want the alcohol and you do it. But it can also be uh, you're venting, you're self-soothing, you're getting out frustration. It's your only form of rebellion because you're Mm. otherwise a compliant perfect housewife you're being misunderstood in the household so you're letting it out in a stupid self-destructive way uh it can be your middle finger to the world as well like I am so frustrated and unhappy and you know so you can there are so many reasons why we do it but Mm. yes it is the biggest I'd say flashing biggest red flag that once you do it once immediately go talk to somebody, anybody listening. Yeah. Because it's Mm. setting up a little pathway that you might then go back to whenever you're stressed to cope again. Never Mm. ends well. Never ends Mm. well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Bella. Mm. Tell me, what was your experience like in rehab? (sighs) It was like, 
a big, beautiful breath of fresh air. It was like a mm. circuit breaker on responsibility. Uh I was lucky enough to be able to afford to go. So first of all, I appreciate that not many can, but it was Byron. We were allowed to mm. swim in the ocean every morning. We were had some really good food. We had a beautiful environment and so self-care was on tap and I hadn't had that mm. for a long, long time. I um, really started the conversation of counselling I wasn't very good at it. I didn't know how to express my feelings. I couldn't understand why my childhood was relevant to any of it. So I could have gained a bit more. I think, look, every rehab centre is different. If I was a bit critical, it could have it could have done a bit more in education around why it is we drink the way we do. Like I could have, I was hungering for that. Mm. I was hungering for that bit rather than that kind of general council self-talk but I can understand you also need stages to get from one traumatic admission before you're you're ready to move on to the next. So I loved the self care, the circuit break at the time out, but oh, I think I think these rehab centres could do a bit more in education and mm, and mm. The, the style of information that they can serve up to you. Mm. I was full of anxiety as well, so now I can talk about alcohol and drinking and everybody knowing about it I'm fine with it but I spent a lot of my time really stressing about what everybody on the lower north shore of Sydney (laughs) possibly gonna think about this lady that uh Mm. had to go to rehab for her Mm. drinking uh and now I'm just like it could be anybody uh it really can and I I came out and I was, I was solidly anxious for a full year. All of my friends were so supportive, so lovely, and so I couldn't have asked for a better community to come back into. Mm. But still mm. there was a lot of rebuilding of trust, a lot mm. of shame with my husband. Well, I bet. Yeah. I bet. There's this beautiful saying that I've heard around the rooms, which is, I don't think much of myself, but it's all I think about. And it's this whole <laughs> idea, isn't it? That like, yeah. everyone's going to be talking and how could I possibly show my face again? And it's like, people, you know, maybe you'll be at the conversation at the school gate for one <laughs> morning and then it's on to the next, no. you know, like it's, yeah. And it's also like what other people think of me is none of my business in saying that. The shame, the guilt, it's its real, especially yeah. when you go back and, and enter back into your life and your intimate relationships. How long Ooh. did it take for you before that, that guilt and shame started to lift? Gosh, awesome question, Ash. I think it was a while for me. Mm. Uh, so probably up until I did the first episode of Not Drinking Today. Wow. Uh, so that at least a year and three quarters, I think. Mm. Mm. I beat myself up about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Um, and then it really just took talking about it, hearing other people's stories to know that um, it didn't matter. And it took a lot of my friends also listening to the podcast and themselves deciding to stop, stop drinking or to drink less mm. to know that, it was actually quite a, it's a quite a 
rebellious but inspiring choice to make that mm. I and I had no regrets so it, it's only improved my life so the shame bit's hard the shame bit is mm. hard um mm. but no I don't have that at all I talk openly with my kids about the struggle I went through and recovery but when I say openly I don't go into all of it but they know that I don't drink um and my friends know I don't drink so Mm. yeah it's gone how how have you gone about repairing those relationships particularly with your husband who by the end it sounds like you know he was pretty hurt and probably finding it quite hard to trust you yeah I think it's really just action speaks louder than words uh just to because in the years preceding it there'd been a lot of uh I'm gonna do it now no it's fine I'm gonna stop uh just drink normally and there was always you know I always broke that promise so it really just had you just had to get months under your belt and for time to pass Mm. uh and also then for enjoyment to creep back into the way that we had we dated and went out and Mm. socialized because we were a really social couple, but amongst alcohol, so all of that had to really shift. Uh, and I'm very well, grateful that he was open to letting our social life change um, mm. because, yeah, there was a lot of really scary anxiety-inducing, or just on my part, nights where he's sitting across a table and all I could think of was, he must think I'm really broken because I can't have a glass of wine. I mean, what a stupid mm. thought that is as well. Mm. What a really stupid mm. thought. It, because from his perspective, he's like, what an awesome woman. She's laughing, having fun uh, without alcohol. She must, you know, she's really putting in 100%. So a lot of reframing. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful that he is so supportive though because oh. I'm sure there are people who – are listening along who perhaps mm. are in a similar situation where their partner is still drinking, they're giving up, but their partner probably is really struggling with it because they've lost their best mate drinking buddy in yes. a way, which that it's can a, be really hard as well. It's a big change. And I, I only mm-hmm. think that you can heal that by leading by example, by showing mm-hmm. just how good you look, you feel when you are alcohol free, that you're happier. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't, mm. it can only make the dynamic between the two of you even better. Uh, mm. You can't, and then, then you can only, yeah, have a positive influence on them. Yeah. And I think education can be really helpful for the partner or the families as well for them to understand that it's not so much a, a cho- it's a choice. Like I'm choosing not to drink, but it's mm. not because like it's like I cannot drink. And when I drink, I get really unwell. And if you want the best for me, you will support this because this is how I stay happy and well. Yeah. So helping them to see that it's not, yep. it's so much more than just a flippant, oh, well, I'm not drinking now. It's like, no, I'm choosing to save my life. <laughs> like yeah. I'm choosing to, to live my life. And that means I have to remove alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Bella, what's something that's been revealed to you since getting sober? Something perhaps you didn't know about yourself or something that you've discovered along the journey? Oh, I'd say I've discovered how absolutely important it is for me to find platforms just to speak and to find my opinion and to use my voice. Mm. And I didn't really realize how important that really was to me. And I am still really trying to find out why. Um, 
there's that beautiful author Anne Dowsett Jones who wrote Drink, and she was much of the same view. She said she was a great writer, communicator, thinker. Alcohol took her voice away, um, mm. and she had to find her voice then to recover, and then recovering gave her her voice back. I think that's a I can relate to that a lot. I think when I was young, growing up, I needed it because I didn't know really who I was, and alcohol gave me allowed me to vocalize. So the thing I think I've discovered now is that I really, I really love the writing platform. I love the podcast platform. I love really beautiful connecting conversations with friends. And I've also just allowed myself to let go what I think I ought to be. Uh, Mm. You know, I think I had an image of me needing to be something entirely different. I've let go of Nigella in the kitchen, the, pipe, the, <laughs> the perfect house that's not happening. Uh, self-grooming has pretty much gone by the wayside. By the way, it could probably <laughs> use with a bit of um, <laughs> bit of an injection, not not literally, but I could I could step up my game a little more. Ah, uh, the practice of self-care. You know, mm. I could I could talk on and on. Um. It's beautiful though. Yeah. I just it sounds like you've come to this place of just acceptance and self-acceptance after years of trying to achieve so that you could prove yourself. It's like I am good enough as I am and how I show up in the world. And that is that is a beautiful shift. Can't ask more than that, can you? Mm, No, absolutely not. I think um it's there are days now where I just I'm awash with gratitude and contentment and I realise in those moments like I've got everything I need to be okay and it's no longer about external validation. Like it it literally all comes from within. That's that's the sweet spot that I've found. And, look, it's not always there by any stretch. But, you know, those fleeting moments make it all worth it. Oh, I relaxed when you said that, Ash. I was just like, oh, it's true, the external Mm. validation, let it go. I just wanted to quickly say, though, it's not always there. And two weeks ago, I think, and I don't know if you've gone through this before, but I had my very first kind of sober rock bottom where Mm. I got so overwhelmed with uh, work, with moving house, selling the house, and then, you know, a massive personal issue hit one of my sons that it threw me for a six. And I, I was just kind of leaning against the wall, not thinking about I needing a drink, but just feeling so wired that I had nothing in my toolkit that I thought could possibly help. It was mm. a feeling like it was so foreign to me and uh, that's why I got on to um, starting yoga, nidra and breath work. Mm. But um, mm. it's funny how I think I had would have dealt with all of that a whole lot worse had it been three years before. Absolutely. And hey, thanks for shining a light on the reality that we experience bottoms in sobriety. I've had a couple. Yeah. And they're, they're bloody painful (laughs) and they feel like when I'm in it, it feels like it's never going to end. And it's Mm. so intense. But each time I do, 
I know that it's a spiritual growth spurt and that's the way I look at it now. And I, you know, I have my safe people who I can go to who really understand and I can talk them through. My dad's one of them. He's amazing. And I I talk to him about this stuff and he's like, honey, it's okay. You're in a, you're in the middle of a growth spurt. Remember, remember the last time we were here. And it's like, it's just so nice to be able to know that this too shall pass. And there's a lesson in the pain. There's a purpose in the pain. We just have to hold on and let it be revealed. Rather than trying to figure it out. I'm waiting yeah. for that to be revealed. All will be revealed. As long as we stay sober and keep taking the next right action, all yeah. will be revealed. Agreed. Hey, Bella, we've got a closing question on the podcast and I'd love to ask that now. Yeah. What are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live your life today happy, joyous and free? Exercise. I think mm. a bit of movement every single day helps me um I would say connection with three people that have your back no matter what so you're safe people gratitude Mm. gratitude for just being alive for working in a career that I absolutely love for having a family that I love and I am grateful for that because I think I nearly lost everything that I held dear to my heart. Mm, so that, that's that beautiful. Would, that would be my three, Ash. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Hey, Bella, if people want to track you down, listen to your podcasts, find out more about you, where should they go? Uh That has, you know, all the information that, about the podcast that I do uh, and Instagram, which is just Let's Talk Alcohol Australia. Yeah, they're the two things, the two main platforms. Excellent. I'll make sure I pop that information in the episode show notes. Bella, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so much for sharing your time, your story, and for everything you do in the community. I'm eternally grateful. You are 100% welcome and thank you. You've actually given me a bit of food for thought over the last hour. (laughs) I love that. Good session. (laughs) Thank you, Ash. Such a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.